Just Mary, the disciples, and the servants knew what had happened. Neither the guests, for that matter, not even the head waiter knew where the wine came from. In fact, he's going to call the groomsmen and he's going to compliment him. So his first miracle is really a very quiet event in contrast to his last public miracle when he raises Lazarus from the dead, which is the most public of all. And after, of course, he raises Lazarus from the dead on that week, he comes into Jerusalem and he presents himself to Israel formally as her Messiah. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The Miracle at Cana. When we left off in our study of John chapter two yesterday, we looked at reasons why Jesus's mother asked her son to perform the miracle of changing water into wine. We saw that Mary knew her son was God and that he has the ability to do miracles. Pastor Carl also explained that Mary knew scripture and that God's prophets often spoke of wine in connection with the coming of the messianic age and that wine was a symbol of the great joy that God would bring. As we return to our message, Dr. Brogy shares one of the other possible reasons that Mary asked her son to perform this miracle. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. And so the groom would come with his groomsmen. It was a torchlight procession. And his coming would be preceded by a trumpet sound. And of course, the maidens would be ready with their lanterns lit for the coming of the bridegroom. And of course, the Lord Jesus in Matthew 25 tells a parable based on this cultural practice of this day. And again, it's a picture of Christ's relationship with us. He's gone to prepare a place for us. He will come back with his holy angels preceded by the trump of God. He will gather his bride, the church, and then we shall be with him forever. Now, when the groom came with his groomsmen and he met his bride and her maidens, they would begin a wedding ceremony that lasted for several days. And unlike in our day, the groom and his family were responsible for serving and meeting all of the needs that this of he and his guests that lasted about a week. I know what some of you guys are thinking, yeah, man, I got four daughters. That's the way it ought to be. <laughs> well, I got four sons and I like the way it is. <laughs> in either case, it sounded like a really neat week long event, just as long as you didn't have to pay for it. So here they are in Cana. Jesus' mother Mary is there. And in addition, we're told in verse 2, and Jesus also is invited and his disciples to the wedding. Jesus, his mother, his disciples, all invited to the same wedding, suggesting there was probably a relative or a close friend that were involved. Now, our Lord was not a recluse. He accepted invitations to social events. In fact, his enemies would take that and turn it around on him. This man receives sinners and eats with them, the Pharisees would say. But our Lord entered into the normal day, everyday experiences of life, and it was really his presence that sanctified those events. And there's really something beautiful about this unnamed, unknown couple, and that they invite the Lord Jesus to this special occasion. And I think it is so tragic today when the Lord Jesus is left out of a wedding, when he is really not invited. After all, he is the author of marriage. He thought it all up. He ought to be invited. God ought to be at the center of every marriage ceremony. And there would be far few 
um, fewer unbroken marriages if from the start a couple acknowledged the lordship of God over their home. Now that's the site of the miracle. Let's move on now to the situation for the miracle. What was the situation for the miracle? Look, if you will, now in verse 3. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now in those days, the run out of wine would not have been considered a good thing. Today, if you run out of punch at a wedding, that's not uh, a disaster. You can just drink water if need be. But in that day, it was a dreadful embarrassment. And don't forget that the Jewish wedding feast lasted about a week, and it was necessary for the groom to have adequate provisions. And it would be embarrassing for the groom to run out either of food or wine. And, and the family to be guilty of such goshery would really break the common everyday standards of hospitality, hospitality in that day. So to run out of wine was really an awful thing. In either case, Mary is very in tune to the situation. And so she says in verse 3, the wine gave out. Or, or we're told in verse 3, the wine gave out. I, I like the way it reads. It, it's just gone. Now, she's obviously playing a very prominent part in this wedding. Some have speculated that this was one of her daughters, that this was one of her children that her and Joseph have. Now, I know the thought rubs some of my Roman Catholic friends raw because they teach what's called the perpetual virginity of Mary. But the Bible doesn't teach that. Now, like Catholics, we affirm and believe very clearly that the Lord Jesus was virgin conceived and virgin born. But anyone who has read the Bible carefully understands that afterwards, Mary and Joseph had normal everyday marital relations. In Matthew 1, we're told, Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. In fact, you read the rest of Scripture, you discover they had at least six children together. For instance, in Matthew 13, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, and Simon, Judas? They're, they're named. And his sisters, are they not all with us? Christ had at least four named brothers. Sisters is here in the plural, which means at least two sisters. So including the Lord Jesus, there are seven people, seven children in this family where Joseph and Mary gave leadership. Now, this passage this morning, this chapter is going to indicate that he had other members in his family. Verse 12, drop down to it. After this, he, the Lord Jesus, went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers separate from his disciples. And there they stayed a few days. So the perpetual virginity of Mary is not a biblical doctrine. It's man-made. In fact, it's anti-scriptural. But here's Mary, however, playing a very prominent role and some are very dogmatic that this is one of her daughters. Well, that's pure supposition. We don't know that. Could very well be. Could have been the half-sister of Christ. But that doesn't seem to jive with my thinking anyway, because in verse 2 it says he was invited. No need to invite your, your, your brother, so to speak. That would be a given. Yet, nonetheless, Mary is very close either to the bride or the bridegroom to have such a personal concern concerning the success of this wedding. And when the wine's depleted, 
she steps in. Now, that would be very inappropriate, both then and now, for guests to take over, unless, of course, you're very much attached to the situation. Weddings in this day were a family affair, and typically female relatives of the bride or close members of the family were usually helpers or put in charge of the food and the drink. In either case, she's aware of the need before it becomes evident to the head caterer, if I can use that term. She was in charge of the, cr- the kitchen. She's in charge of the food and the drink. And so naturally, she turns to the Lord Jesus for help. She says, they have no wine. Now, what did she mean by that? Well, there have been different suggestions. Let me share some of them. Some say, well, Mary was just passing on the sad news. Oh, Jesus, isn't it too bad? They have no wine. But I don't think that interpretation is correct. It very clearly indicates in verse 5 that Mary's instructions to the servant expected him to do something. She's not just passing on sad news with no implication. Some have suggested that she was hinting for the Lord Jesus and his disciples to leave that it would minimize the embarrassment of the groom. It's argued that Jesus brought extra guests, and so there was now no wine for them. Well, that's sheer speculation, and it seems to contradict the clear statement of verse 2, which indicates that they weren't crashing this party. Calvin, in his commentary, he suggests, well, Mary was basically asking the Lord Jesus for a sermon of sorts. Go ahead, they're out of wine, preach something. Do something in order to cover over the embarrassment of the groom and occupy the minds of the guests. Nothing in this context would allow for this interpretation. I don't think she's passing on bad news or inviting him to give a sermon or asking his friends to leave. Well, others say that she's asking the Lord Jesus to go out and buy some wine. Now, after all, if tradition is correct, Joseph undoubtedly is dead at this time, which would explain why he's never mentioned again after Jesus is at the age of 12 there in the temple. In fact, when you come to the time frame of Mark chapter 6, he's not simply known as the carpenter's son, but as the carpenter. So it appears that the Lord Jesus kept the carpentry shop in operation to provide for his family. And so any widow like Mary would have leaned hard on the firstborn son. But I don't think she's asking him to go and buy some more wine. It's an interesting suggestion, but as we'll see in a moment, the response in the conversation doesn't fit that at all. A fifth interpretation, and I think held by most and indeed the correct is that behind this question is an invitation for Christ to do a miracle. She's calling on the Lord Jesus to do a miracle. In fact, her statement, and the original is not really a command, it's not an order, it's much like a prayer that she makes to Christ. And she knew that he could do something about it. Now, if you remember, when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, she told the angel Gabriel, he told Mary, that the offspring in her womb, supernaturally conceived by the Holy Spirit, would be God Himself. He would be the Messiah, the Son of the Most High, the Son of God. So she knew that He had the ability to do miracles. In fact, when you study this woman's prayer in Luke chapter 2, here is a godly woman. Study her prayer sometimes. It's an indication that her mind is drenched in the Holy Scripture. She knew her Bible. She would have known what the prophets like Jeremiah and Hosea and Amos 
had prophesied concerning the coming messianic age when wine would flow liberally. And so God uses that imagery in reference to the Messiah because wine in the Bible is a symbol of the great joy that God would bring. And so she knew it would be quite appropriate for him to provide wine. But don't forget, I think that there's probably another reason why she's asking for this miracle. Remember, during the betrothal period, she's pregnant. During a betrothal period, there was to be no physical relationship whatsoever. Joseph, of course, claimed he was not the father. In fact, he wanted to put her away, literally divorce her. He wanted to put her away secretly. He didn't want to disgrace her being a righteous man. And I'm sure for years to follow, they would ask, Joseph, are you the father? And of course, being a righteous man, he could not lie. In fact, the word on the street was that Mary had relationships, a relationship with him while betrothed or possibly with another man. And the rumors never ceased because when we come to John chapter 8, the Pharisees will say, we weren't born of fornication like you were. Now, Mary deeply loved God. And if the Lord Jesus did a, a miracle now, certainly God's name would be exonerated. Her name is a believer who claimed The name of God is her Savior. Her name would be exonerated, but not just her name, the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, society has changed, I know. But there was a time, even in America, where if you were born out of wedlock, people would whisper it in someone else's ear. It was not a good thing to be considered an illegitimate child. So Mary, one, knew her name would be cleared, But she also knew her son's name would be cleared if the Lord Jesus did this miracle because it would prove indeed that he was Messiah. And Messiah, the Bible says, would be born of a virgin. So I don't think it's a selfish request. I think, one, she clearly wants to see the needs met in the wedding, though I do think that there's possibly another motivation behind it as well. In either case, the wine runs out. And as we will see from the dialogue that follows, she's asking Jesus to do a miracle. Look at verse 4. Look at Jesus' response. And Jesus said to her, woman. Now that seems rather disrespectful, maybe a little bit abrupt, maybe even harsh, but it's not. It's not a term of abuse. In fact, in the first century, it's a term of respect and affection. Now, to translate the Greek into English is indeed a difficult challenge. Woman, today in most of our English translations, seems a little too distant. Uh, Some have suggested, well, maybe we should translate it lady. I think that's probably a little too condescending. It's not used much today in formal address except maybe by a New York cabbie. You know, lady, get in, will you? Um... Actually, this term woman was a term both of respect and endearment that you would address very often to an, uh, to an adult woman. When I was in the Ukraine, my translator and I were in a village and we we're sharing the gospel with people. And we're in a village where no one, as best we could tell, knew Jesus Christ as their savior. They were Christianized like most of the Ukraine. Most of the people in Ukraine have heard the name of Christ They're Christianized, but they're not Christian. In either case, he would go up and he'd say, babushka, as we'd walk up into this crowd of elderly women. 
And I thought, after I said, Peter, you called her babushka. I thought that meant grandmother. These ladies obviously aren't your grandmother. He said, oh, there's a secondary meaning. It also can mean old woman, old lady. I said, you're saying old lady. <laughs> no, that's not all that respectful, is it? I knew there was more to it. And he said, no, actually, he says it's a term of respect. To call an older woman babushka. Uh, was a, a great term of respect, endearment if it was your grandmother, but respect if it was an older woman, that she had reached that stately age. Maybe the closest thing in English is the expression we use in the South where a son says to his mother, a ma'am. Um, but what I want you to understand is this is not a put down. This is not disrespectful. And if you just read, of course, the rest of the gospel, that becomes apparent because the Lord Jesus, as he hangs on the cross there, he will say to Mary concerning the Apostle John, Woman, behold your son. It was a deep sense of tender moment of care. But notice what he says, Woman, what do I have to do with you? Literally, the Greek text reads, what is it to me and to you? Kind of an awkward phrase for us, not for them. The Greek scholar Wist uh, paraphrases it, what is it to us? No, not what is it to me, but what is it to me and to you? What is it to us? You want me to prove that I am the Messiah. You want me to do this miracle now for whatever reason. You want me to do it. But he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, when you read that, what do you mean? My hour has not yet come. It seems to me that it has come. In fact, he's going to go ahead and he's going to do the miracle. Yes, he does the miracle in the sense that he meets the request, but he does not do it in a public, open fashion, proclaiming that he is the Messiah. Our Lord's first miracle was not a spectacular event that everyone witnessed. In fact, as you read the chapter carefully, just Mary, the disciples, and the servants knew what had happened. Neither the guests, for that matter, not even the head waiter knew where the wine came from. In fact, he's going to call the groomsmen and he's going to compliment him. So his first miracle is really a very quiet event in contrast to his last public miracle when he raises Lazarus from the dead, which is the most public of all. And after, of course, he raises Lazarus from the dead on that week, he comes into Jerusalem and he presents himself to Israel formally as her Messiah. But for now, it's not the time to publicly prove that. My hour has not yet come. And so John introduces us to this very important phrase, my hour or the hour. You're going to see it all the way through the gospel to demonstrate that the Lord Jesus was living on a divine timetable set for him by the Father. Repeatedly, he'll say, it's not time. My hour hasn't come until we come to that high priestly prayer just before his crucifixion where he will say, the Father, the hour has come. But for now, my hour has not come. The thought is, Mary, you and I aren't on the same wavelength right now. This is not a messianic moment. He's giving her a gentle rebuke of sorts. Now, Mary is presuming on a family tie that this is the one she carried in her womb. But Christ has now entered into that purpose for which the Father had sent him. He's begun his public ministry. He's already called his disciples. But his hour in terms of God's timetable for his life is not what Mary thought. 
And everything, even family ties, even a desire to have possibly God's name exonerated is secondary to the timetable that God has set for the Son of God. And so while Mary understands this is indeed a gentle rebuke, she's going to relate to him now not primarily as the mother, but she's going to come to him as a believer She's going to come to him as Lord. Now, she understands, of course, her son's going to do something. That's obvious from verse 5. Look at it. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, that's the best advice I think you could give any person. Whatever Christ says, do it. She knew that Jesus cared about this situation and that he would take action in his own way. So she tells the servants to obey his instructions. Now in verse 3, she's appealing to him as mother, and she's gently rebuked. Now she responds as a believer, and he's going to honor her faith. She doesn't know what he's going to do, but she does know that he is going to do something. By the way, she's a great model for us. Do what he says, and trust him. Just trust and believe in him. You see this woman, her appearances are very few in the Gospels. But whenever you see her, my, what a wonderful lady she is. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Now the Lord used what was available, as he always does. He said to Moses, what's in your hand? It's a stick. Well, it's going to become a staff, a symbol of divine authority to Pharaoh and all the people. He takes a boy's lunch bag and he fed 5,000. Here there are six stone water pots and he's going to use them to perform a miracle. Now, they're not the typical clay pot. They're stone pots. And that's significant because they're used for purification. They were not impervious or as impervious like uh, earthenware, clayware. Because these were used for purification. You know the Jews were very concerned about outward purification. You read Mark chapter 7. It's a good illustration of how they would pour water over people's hands to purify their hands before they partook of the food in their mouth. And the Pharisees came to Christ and said, Look, your disciples don't wash their hands in the right way. They're not going through all the formations correctly. And Jesus, of course, said, Well, what defiles a man... Not what he takes the hand and then puts into his mouth. What really defiles a man is what comes out of his heart. That's the real problem. Not external, but internal. The external ceremonial washings of the Old Testament could never cleanse anyone. They were just symbolic of man's ultimate need for internal cleansing. So Jesus says here in verse 7, Fill the water pots with water. And they fill them up to the brim. That makes all reading this miracle, makes it very clear. Nothing but water. Nothing else can be added. It's water right up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. They carried to the head waiter, what we might call the, the, the maitre d' or the head caterer. He's the person ultimately over the whole thing. And when the head waiter, verse 9, tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then that which is poor. You have kept the good wine until now. Now the master of the banquet didn't know the origin of the wine, but he recognized 
the quality of the wine. By the way, the servants knew its origin, and that's very often true. They knew what the head honcho didn't know, and the Lord is going to show that later in this gospel. Let me say parenthetically, if you want to be on the inside spiritually, become a servant. Servants always know the secrets. It's true in the White House, true in the governor's mansion. Servants know more than the people in the neighborhood typically know. They know it more in the church. And when we come to John chapter 15, the Lord is going to teach that very, very simple truth. If you want to be on the inner circle, be a servant because he calls servants his friends. But back to the point that the head waiter makes. People typically serve the best food and the best drink at the beginning of a feast. And at the end of the feast, when they start running low on roast beef sandwiches, they pull out the bologna. When the Coca-Cola and the uh, Dr. Pepper is gone, they break out Czech Cola and Dr. Wiz. And, and so the head waiter, he tasted the wine Jesus made, something superior in flavor to anything they had had, and he calls the bridegroom and he questions him on it. By the way, this miracle of changing water into wine has been the center of controversy for some time. In fact, even non-Christians will often use this passage to justify their ungodly lifestyle. You know, there's three verses in the sinner's Bible. God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> Judge not lest you be judged. And Jesus made wine. And so they argue that the people here were so high, so drunk, that the poor wine that is typically served at the end when people are drunk and they can't tell the difference, that this is kind of a reversal of order. Friend, I want to tell you that interpretation is blasphemous to the Son of God. To say that the Lord Jesus knew that, 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 that he was in a situation where this head waiter perceives, I don't understand it. People are high as a kite right now. Why are you serving the best now? They wouldn't know it. That's what you're saying in that interpretation. Now follow very closely. You see this word here, have drunk freely. It's the Greek word, methuthosin. It can indeed refer to intoxication. But it can also refer to someone who's drunk to the point where they are satisfied. It could refer in the context of water. There are numerous examples in the Greek Bible where the word is used and it has absolutely nothing to do with intoxication but drinking to the point where you're satisfied. Now, if you have the New American Standard, you'll note out there in the margin an alternate reading. It says, have become drunk. And those marginal notes are very helpful sometimes. Sometimes if there's a play on word in the Greek text, they'll note that out in the margin. Or sometimes if there's a literal rendering, it'll say L-I-T, and it will give you the literal rendering of what has been said. Here they're giving the alternate reading because they recognize that this Greek verb can refer to intoxication, or it can refer to someone who has drank to the point where he's just been satisfied. And of course, they don't go with the alternate reading. They put in the body of the text that when men have drunk freely, the King James says, have drunk well. In fact, I looked at 15 English translations and only one rendered it with the idea of intoxication. And so here's the point, though. It's not a big deal to serve the bologna sandwiches and the Czech cola when people have eaten and drunk to the point they're satisfied. That's the point. 
But it's blasphemous to argue that Christ was involved in a situation where men were drunk and now he was going to make them drunker. And understand too, the emphasis of this miracle is not on the kind of wine, but on the quality of wine, on the flavor of the wine. If you enjoyed today's message, remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 005. Maybe you have a question that you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that tomorrow between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.